0: Good afternoon, it's Monday the 25th of October 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Kirish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border.
1: Um, Well, Sajid Javid, the wonderful health secretary was on BBC Breakfast this morning. Uh, He's looking particularly cool there. Uh, We've yet to make a final decision on whether to mandatory, you know, compel vaccination in the NHS. But if you're asking me, is that something that I'm minded to do? Yes, I am. So he is uh, very much saying that he wants to uh, mandate vaccinations for NHS workers. Why was that? Uh, it's not only right for someone working in the NHS, because naturally, they're more likely to come into contact with COVID. Uh, but also for those they're caring for, those who are vulnerable in the hospital. So it's getting a bit confusing. Brian, I don't really understand what's going on. Um, Vaccines are the way out of this, but vaccines aren't the way out of this uh, at the same time. So it's all getting very tricky. So let's have a, a look at this document. This is uh, the latest vaccine, uh, COVID-19 vaccine surveillance report. This is for week 42. And I just want to highlight uh, this particular table. Table two, COVID-19 cases by vaccination status between week 38 and week 41, 2021. Uh, and uh, well, this uh, report has changed somewhat over the last number of weeks. And now on the right-hand side there, you'll see two columns. One. Uh, showing rates among persons vaccinated with two doses per 100,000 and rates among persons not vaccinated uh, per 1, 100,000. Now, this is for COVID 19 cases. Uh, and as Patrick was saying on Friday, of course, the caveat on that is uh, that these, these numbers are generated through PCR and lateral flow tests and so on. But nonetheless, uh, if we look at those that are under 18, uh, we find that the rate per 100,000 uh, for those that are fully vaccinated is 314. And for those that are not vaccinated, for under 18s, it's 3,013, and that looks like a very bad statistic. But of course, we've got to take into account uh, that uh, schools are requiring uh, huge quantities of testing still, uh, and therefore that will affect those numbers, but also uh, the relatively few number of people uh, that are under 18 that are vaccinated, and therefore that will skew the figures as well. Um, So... uh, but when we start getting into the uh, areas where vaccination has, there's been some take up of vaccines, i.e. from 18 to 29, 30 to 39 and so on, we find the picture changing very quickly. And this uh, new table is important because it is per 100,000. So the, the figures are comparable, uh, no matter what the actual vaccination rate is in the country. Um, and so what we find is that once we get to the 30 to 39 age group, actually in terms of the number of cases, we're doing much better if you're unvaccinated, Uh, And uh, particularly, well, uh, if you're in the 40 to 49 age group, where there's 1,731 cases per per, per 100,000 people if you're vaccinated, and only 772 cases per 100,000 people if you're not vaccinated, Um, and uh, that heads up towards uh, those that are over 80, where it is 406. Uh, per 100,000, if you're vaccinated, and 304 if you're unvaccinated per 100,000. Now, of course, there are other tables in this document, uh, including deaths, and the death statistics uh, appear to show the opposite trend in this, in the sense that uh, per 100,000, uh, in terms of deaths, uh, it is a worse outcome if you're unvaccinated. Uh, but the question there is that well, there's a whole range of questions which we'll we'll cover more on Wednesday on the death side of things because that's when the uh, ONS latest ONS data is out, but I wanted to focus on cases in particular because it's cases that are driving the policy uh, and it's these case numbers that continue to drive the policy. So uh, I'm not really sure what we can say about that. The question then is, is Sajid Javid justified in, in requiring mandatory vaccination for those working in the NHS when it seems that there's a much higher likelihood that staff working in the NHS would end up becoming a COVID case and therefore taking time off work, for example, um, and uh, that may increase the pressure on the NHS. I'm not sure. David, I don't know if you saw uh, Friday's programme. We had Tony Blair, a quick clip from Tony Blair, and there just doesn't seem to be any consistency in the argument here from anybody.
2: No, indeed not. And and what's the justification for driving people from their jobs uh, if they won't get vaccinated? It, it's it's not um, that you're protecting other people by being vaccinated because the the prime minister's already said that it, it, you're not um, you, you can still pass on the, the, the disease you still catch the disease if you're vaccinated. It's only the very severe end where they're now claiming that there's an advantage to being vaccinated, and that's surely a personal decision. That makes it a personal decision for the individual. I can't see how they have any intellectually coherent position left at all for these mandates and uh, these exclusions of the uh, of the unvaccinated from the labour force uh, and from economic life.
0: Just to add a little bit of uh, good news into that analysis, and I don't agree with, uh, don't disagree with what you've said at all, uh, David. But uh, I was told by a person working in the NHS this morning. Uh, that they are pretty confident that about 120,000 people working for the NHS have said they will not be having a vaccine, and uh, I think the total number of people who work for the NHS is about half a million, 500,000 people. I'm that's just off the top of my head, so if anybody um, is saying Brian's not right on that figure for how many are employed by the NHS, please let me know. Um, but. Uh, a very interesting person talking about the vast number of people inside the NHS who are not going to have a vaccine because they don't believe it's safe. But to come on to your point about uh, Boris, let's uh, just have a little look at uh, Boris talking. This is a very short um, video clip, which uh, actually came from a Twitter uh, provider that um, I was given this morning. That's Victory Day, altogether underscore hope. Um, but a very interesting little clip that I hadn't seen before. Let's hear what Boris has to say.
3: A lot of protection against uh, serious illness and death, but it doesn't uh, protect you against catching the disease and it doesn't, uh, doesn't protect you against passing it on. So now is the time to get your booster. A lot of protection against uh, serious illness
0: So uh, there we are. He's very clear in what it doesn't do. I think uh, to answer your main query about the message and why it's incoherent, David, it's simply because they have lied from the start. They have lied about whether or not there was a pandemic. They have lied about all the measures to counter that uh, false pandemic. And now, of course, they're being caught out by their own lies in their own statistical statistics and data. So we can expect the message to become less and less coherent and we can expect the number of lies to increase as they try and cover their tracks. Uh,
1: And in the meantime, David, uh, here's the mail with a headline, nerve disorder that affects the feet, hands and limbs are added as a rare side effect of AstraZeneca COVID jab. Uh, It took quite a long time for uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome to be added to this list.
2: It took a very long time because we were reporting on this um, well over a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it, I think it must have been Guillain Barré syndrome uh, has been added. They're talking about 833 cases out of five 582 million doses to emphasise how rare it is. Uh, I would question that. I think we will have a look at the statistics on that um, because we've had quite a lot of reports um, of this very thing. In fact, gentlemen, uh, the UK column was removed from YouTube for reporting this very effect. We put on a a report from a woman whose husband was in ICU because of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which he contracted due to uh, the AstraZeneca jab. And uh, because we put on that truthful and accurate report, uh, YouTube uh, removed our channel. Um, Now that it's on the mail online, does that mean they put us back on? I suspect not.
1: Uh, No. Um, So where does that take us? Um, the, uh,
2: the. Sorry, uh, the, we're on to um, a number of a number of a number of things to do with COVID. Let's go. Yes, let's go to Jacinda at the um, uh, premier of New Zealand, and uh, she's talking and she's uh, been interviewed and uh, she seems to be unduly relaxed because. She says out loud something that I suspect is meant to be secret. Someone asks her a very um, um, bold question, a very bold question, but it asks it with such um, obvious servility. She's kind of disarmed. And in, in a strange moment, she tells the truth. So
4: you basically see it. This is going to be like, well, it's almost like, you probably don't see it like this, the two different classes of people. If you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated, you have all these rights
1: if
5: you are vaccinated.
6: That is what it is. So, yep.
5: Yep. Can you describe as you were previously hoping not to be able to, not to have to do that, I guess, when we still look mm. like we could maintain elimination across the whole country. I guess that has now changed because...
6: I think it was less, less because necessarily of the elimination determining that and more because we, of course... Maintained and actually, we have managed very high vaccination rates generally without the use of certificates. But actually, what has become clear to me is that they're not just a tool to drive up vaccines. They're a tool for confidence. People who have been vaccinated will want to know that they're around other vaccinated people. Uh, They want to know that they're in a safe environment. It is a way that we can give confidence to those who are going back into hospitality or events, Uh, and so. That is something that I think we should offer to people who have been vaccinated, that confidence that we're doing everything we can to keep them safe and that they can come back out and start enjoying those things safely.
2: Now, wasn't that a fascinating little clip? Um, So the journalist gives her a question and and puts things um, too strongly, expecting her to roll back, and she just agrees. Yes, that's right. Um, The people who are vaccinated have rights... The people who are unvaccinated don't have those rights. And you can actually hear the journalist trying to roll her back a little bit because you'd realised she'd gone too far in telling the truth. But it, it got worse because what she then said, it's about confidence. So it's not about health. It's about emotion. It's about emotional state. So what she's essentially saying, I think, is this. We've mobilised... Um, all of the weapons that we have in terms of psychology to terrify people, and we've done it for about two years now, and the people are very terrified, and they they, they won't stop being terrified just because this vaccine of dubious con- of dubious benefit has been has been largely taken up by most of the population. They need to be given confidence. We need to do something to. Um, to to disarm the fear that we put into the population to allow them to go back to their normal lives. Now we want them to do that. Um, So we need to give them confidence. Hence, we must must oppress the unvaccinated in order to give the vaccinated confidence. It is a, a truly astounding statement.
1: Um, and that brings us then to Scotland and uh, the headline here in The Courier, COVID restrictions need considered. If um, This is their bad grammar there. If cases rise, warned Scott's top doctor.
2: Yes. So this is the head of the British Medical Association Scotland, uh, Dr. Uh, Lewis Morrison said, quote, the case needs to be made uh, uh, they would genuinely take the pressure off the NHS talking about more lockdowns So he then says it would be a mistake to single out COVID-19 as the reason behind the pressure facing the NHS. There's general pressure facing the NHS and staff shortages. So it's not COVID-19, that's not the problem, but lockdown to cure COVID-19, that would solve the problem. You see how incoherent the the so-called experts are getting. I would also point out that uh, Dr Lewis Morrison better watch out because, frankly, he's a bit of a chubster. And um, he may find that if he continues to support uh, changing a health policy based on controlling people's behavior, his calorie intake might come in for some attention in years and months to come. He said, at any stage, if cases start to rise again, reintroduction needs to be considered, but it needs to be done in a way that takes everyone with that decision, because I think people have had a very long 20 months. That is also utterly incoherent in, in what way can you lock people down and restore the liberty but take people with the decision? So he's talking about we must, we must lie convincingly. We must, we must deceive the people. We can't just bully them anymore. We have to deceive them, seems to be what he's saying. He, but he's already said that it's not COVID that's causing the pressure on the NHS. So the entire position, he's gone on radio and he's just exposed how little he knows about COVID, about the pressures on the NHS, and about what the policy should be, let alone the economic uh, impact, the effect on families, the effect on mental health, and all the other myriad things, which he's ignoring as he blithely says, well, we should be thinking about more lockdowns. Uh,
1: and so what's uh, the Labour Party talking about then?
2: Now, so the Labour Party, you can, this is the opposition, or one of the opposition parties in Scotland, uh, they're saying, well, so there's a wake-up call because there's a spike in patients being exposed to COVID in Scottish hospitals. Transpires, if you want to catch COVID, a hospital's a good place to do it. Um, and, and they're saying well, it's a wake-up call because, you know, they're, they're, they're opposing the SNP. They're being in opposition. Exactly how much of an opposition? Well, um, they went on Question Time. This was the Labour leader in Scotland, Anna Sarwar. He went on BBC Question Time. And he said... We know who is not vaccinated. We know where they live. And we should be looking at door-to-door vaccinations. So there you go. That's the opposition. The opposition is, yes, I know that you've completely crushed everyone's rights and we've introduced a kind of medical fascism. But, but we oppose that because it's just not gone far enough. Um, we, need, we need to be going into people's homes and vaccinating them. It didn't say forcibly, but there seems to be certainly at least a more than a hint of intimidation in here. And uh, yes, the Labour Party's view, if you love liberty, we know where you live.
1: Uh, Excellent. So uh, here's Keir Starmer then. And of course, uh, the Labour Party last week uh, failed to do anything about the renewal of the Coronavirus Act. Uh, But uh, today he's very upset about anybody, um, you know, trying to lobby parents or school teachers. Uh, He said it's completely unacceptable for children, teachers or parents to be intimidated and harassed outside their school. So it's intimidation and harassment, apparently. Uh, He went on to say by protesters peddling misinformation and dangerous lies about the life-saving vaccine
0: program. Well, I'm, I'm wincing here, Mike, because the arrogance of this man, just breathtaking. Of course, he's immensely ignorant as well, but the arrogance of what he's saying. Anybody, we could ha- we could have a scientific member of the public, they speak out they're a protester peddling misinformation.
1: Uh, absolutely, but it gets better. Uh, he went on to say the uptake of vaccines among ch- children is far too low and the government's rollout is painfully slow. Uh, everything must be done to get those eligible jabbed as quickly as possible in this public health emergency. So he's still banging the public health emergency drum. Uh, and so he says, local authorities should have the power to impose public spaces protection orders immediately, if agreed by the school, the leader of the council and the local police chief constable. So there we go, David, uh, we're going to get those uh, public spaces protection orders out. Uh, we're going to stop people protesting or uh, otherwise lobbying uh, outside the school gates.
2: So the answer is, uh, you know how many... <laughs> How many fascists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Is three. We need three people to take away your rights. We need the local police chief, the head, the headmaster of the school, and the head of the council. That's all. If those, if those three agree that you do not have the right of free speech, uh, of public assembly, of making any sort of protest, your rights are gone, presumably forever, or, or until they change their minds. All right. This is. Appalling. I mean, I thought at the start of this piece, Mike, you were just were just looking again at the politicians' notorious use of irregular nouns. You know, I'm a freedom fighter, you're a guerrilla, uh, he is a terrorist, right? Because we've now got, uh, you know, I, I, I am a respected expert, you are peddling misinformation. Um, this, you know, and the only difference is who agrees with the state. That's the only difference. It's nothing to do with medical qualifications, reason, logic, anything like that. Statistics (laughs) perish the thought. It's just who agrees with the government? Who agrees with
0: the narrative?
1: Yeah, and we'll have much more on that in a little bit. Uh,
0: Indeed, but we also need to remember where that narrative for the government comes from, because the government, of course, is not cooking up the narrative themselves. Many people in our chat room uh, are saying at the moment that of course with Keir Starmer you've got to remember his um, connections to the trilateral commission where we're moving into globalist government so it's globalist government policy I think we're seeing Mm. and that's what our MPs are spewing out they're not thinking for themselves but let's focus in on the schools and big thank you to this little video clip that was sent to us um, where a head teacher up in the Manchester area Says something very interesting. Listen carefully to this uh, interview by Sky News.
6: Good morning. Uh, Rather chilly Manchester here today, Kay. And uh, the 1,250 pupils have started to arrive here at uh, Ashton on Mersey School. And yes, they will be wearing masks. That's a policy uh, within the Trafford area because this is one of the highest infection rates uh, in the country at the moment. So clearly uh, a real problem for uh, schools to try and keep everyone bio safe, to try and keep everyone COVID secure uh, and so on. So masks have been reintroduced here. They've been uh, reintroduced a couple of weeks ago. I can have a chat with the Academy principal here, Taryn Kapoor. Uh, So there are ten schools within the Academy group aren't there? Just the Trafford ones at the moment are wearing face masks.
5: Talk us us through the situation. Yeah, two of our schools, secondary schools in Trafford, we moved back to masks last week. I'm really pleased we've done that because it gives the staff and it gives the community a sense of security, I think, because the the infection rates are extremely high. It's a very suburban area, this, so it's helped, I think, the situation. I do believe after half term, schools were being masked again
6: you think that we're going to to go back to compulsory masks across the whole
5: country Uh, it's looking that way infection rates across all of our schools are increasing so what's the situation here how many people have you got off at the moment with covid so yesterday we had 30 tests positive um, and 14 were sent home with positive lateral flow tests so there'll be another probably 10 or 15 today Um, and then we've had the vaccinations and uh, we've got 14 off with um, vaccine side effects
6: so you do uh, undertake the vaccination programme here. You have the vaccinators in a couple of times a week. What's the take up been like that?
5: Yeah, up to now we've had about um, 420 from 1250. It's twice a week. I do feel sorry for the health service because they're with the 5,000 secondary schools, their resources are completely stretched and they are running out of vaccines in some of the days they're in. So children have to wait for the next session. So some parents are a little bit frustrated, but I'm not blaming the health service because they're doing the best. Well, you're clearly
6: doing everything that you can here at National Mersey School. So uh, 1,250 pupils, uh, around 45 of them or so off, either with confirmed COVID or suspected COVID at the moment. And they are, as you've seen, all wearing face masks when they go into school.
0: OK, thanks a lot. So lots of good points there. Um, sense of security. Uh, it's not about reality. It's just what makes people think, uh, think correctly. That uh, was your point from earlier, David. Um, bio safe. Uh, but what did he say? Well, he said that basically he had a number of uh, children who were off 14 with adverse reactions from the vaccine. And you'll notice, of course, that the, uh, the interviewer there did not mention those in his summing up of the children who were not at school. So pumping vaccines into children, when we were told at the beginning of the uh, so-called pandemic that children were not at risk, we're pumping in vaccines, and when we get an adverse reaction, we're not mentioning it. But of course, there can't be any adverse reactions, David, because the MHRA, the authority which is monitoring vaccine adverse reactions, even though it's got millions of reports and thousands of deaths recorded, keeps saying there are no adverse reactions. So what can that uh, principal, academy principal, possibly mean that he's got children who've suffered adverse effects?
2: Adverse effects enough to be off school. So he's caused incapacitation to 14, at least 14, 14 simultaneously, of his pupils. Do you you think he's worried by that? Is he concerned?
0: He should be, because he holds ultimate responsibility for the safety of those children while they're in his school. Well, he does.
2: Of course, the the, the mindset is, well, it's the NHS. It's nothing to do with us. But that's not the legal position. Um, And how many, I mean, okay, he sent 45 home because they've tested positive. But presumably, they didn't have symptoms because otherwise they wouldn't have been at school in the first place. So... How many are actually off school because they're ill with COVID, compared to how many are off school because they're ill with the effects of the vaccine? How does that stack up? I wonder.
1: Well, that's a good question. And of course, as we mentioned many, many times, uh, people become much more vulnerable to illness uh, in the two weeks immediately following vaccination. So, did the, the vaccine, if they are ill with uh, COVID or some related? Uh, Illness? uh, Are they? uh, Is that because they were another sort of side, another type of side effect? That's another good question. Uh, But look, let's uh, let's move on to come back to Sajid Javid this morning, Um, because the question is, are we going back into lockdown now? The Labour Party is very, very keen for us to uh, to go back into lockdown, but. Javid said, uh, I believe we will have a normal Christmas this year. Uh, so everybody <laughs> will be glad to know that. That almost guarantees that Christmas is cancelled this year, just uh, just to translate that for anybody that isn't quite aware. Uh, and But he also said, don't worry uh, on Wednesday. He didn't quite say it in these terms, but this is more or less what he said. Don't worry. On Wednesday, Rishi is giving another £5.9 billion to the NHS to deal with the NHS backlog. Um, so uh, nothing to worry about there, but it doesn't, you know, it's, they're going to give the money for the backlog. Uh, just run through what they're going to give it for, actually. Uh, $2.3 billion will be used to fund a big expansion of diagnostic tests, for example, through more CT, MRI and ultrasound scans. But that's already been announced. So that's not new money. So that's not really new anyway.
0: But you can't get a test at the moment, Mike. One of the key things is people are saying that they can't get tests. Right. So, but, but they, they're going to spend
1: 2.3 billion to make sure that you can. So, don't worry about that. Okay, that's don't good. worry. By Christmas, it'll all be sorted. Uh, this includes opening more community clinics for scans and tests, is what they said. So, 1.5 billion is going to be spent on more beds, equipment, and new surgical hubs. Uh, 2.1 billion is going to be spent on improving IT and digital technology within the NHS, for example. Faster broadband. So there you go. They're going to spend 5.9 billion, but 2.1 billion of that is going to be for faster broadband. So what would that? What the reason for that be? Would that be to increase the number of 111 consultations, increase the number of remote consultations? I suspect it is, but that's hardly good news in terms of the health service. Uh, But it gets even better, doesn't it, David? Because when we head north of the border, of course, we've got the COP26 coming up in a week or two, Uh, and uh, well, apparently. In order to facilitate the NHS, uh, sorry, to facilitate the COP26, you've basically just got to curl up and die. Well, it's certainly if
2: you're looking for a routine appointment in a Glasgow hospital, uh, you may be disappointed. Uh, the herald reports road closures and hospital appointments cancelled ahead of the conference. Uh, because they're expecting a lot of congestion. There's, of course, a security zone. Uh, many roads are closed. The middle of Glasgow is going to be horrendous to get round. Uh, there's going to be lots of congestion. And to help this uh, and um, protect the NHS from, I don't know, uh, being, being annoyed by, by the traffic, uh, we're cancelling uh, hospital appointments. But don't worry, because Hamza Yusuf, the, I'm sorry to say this, health secretary, uh, has said that of course there will be an increase in coronavirus as a result of COP26 climate change summit descending on Glasgow. So um, that's, that's, uh, that's not good. Um, so we're bringing these people over to, to interrupt the flow of treatment to Glaswegians and to give them COVID-19. So there uh, we go.
1: Excellent. Uh, but it's also co- uh, COP26 that is also having an impact on whether people decide to have uh, children.
2: Yeah, this there was a long piece in The Courier um, as they talked to a lot of local people, uh, carefully selected local people, about how they view COP26 and the climate emergency. So this is one young lady here, um, Dundee resident Chuck Riley, is so concerned for the future at the age of just 22, she's decided not to have children. Quote, I've elected not to have kids because another person um, uh, who has to worry about their environmental impact, it doesn't make sense. Self-employed Chuck said she's completely set on the decision. I'm not going to bring someone else into that, she added. So here we see, if you look back at uh, Limits to Growth, the report by um, the Club of Rome uh, that, that that really started all of this off, uh, they were looking for an enemy, and the enemy was humanity. You see this being played out now in this young lady's mind. She's so convinced that humanity itself is toxic uh, that she doesn't want to perpetuate the race. Um, we are the enemy. It's anti-human to the core. That's the nature of COP26, and we shouldn't forget it.
1: Yes. Uh, now, uh, news, GB, GB News, sorry, has been running for a little while now. Andrew neil is gone. Uh, I haven't been massively impressed with it in general, David, but one person who has been perhaps better than most has been Neil Oliver. Uh, and, uh, of course, he's just made uh, a bit of a, 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 how do we describe it? He's, he's given a piece to camera. Uh, just uh, lead into this for us.
2: Yes. So Neil Oliver, who's, who's been a long time defender of rationality and reason and history and analysis and thought. Um, in firstly in Scotland uh, he was head of the uh, National Trust um, in National Trust of Scotland much to the uh, anger of the SNP and the supporters because he supports Great Britain and the Union and uh, he got a lot of flack for that and he stood up to that and he did not buckle um, and he's now standing up for many other things on GB News, he's standing up for Um, courage. He's standing up for British values and he's speaking out and he's doing this in in a variety of monologues um, which are often excellent. We've got a couple of clips from the most recent one.
4: I watch world leaders speaking on TV and I listen to and read the news and I wonder how stupid they all think we are. Take our own Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He was on Sky News this week and acknowledged that while the vaccine offers a level of protection against illness and death, it doesn't protect you against catching the disease and it doesn't protect you against passing it on. Those were his exact words. Surely that sentence right there means vaccine passports would be meaningless and pointless. Even if the day comes when every single person in the UK from newborn babies upwards has received the vaccines, The virus, assuming our Prime Minister's statement is to be trusted, will continue to be spread among the population. Knowing that someone has been vaccinated will make no difference to whether or not you might catch COVID from them or whether you might pass COVID on. The inference to be drawn from Mr Johnson's words is that the virus will continue to pass between vaccinated and unvaccinated alike. It may reasonably be inferred, therefore, that continued talk of vaccine passports is not about controlling the spread of the virus. Rather, it must be about controlling the movement of people seeking only to go about their law-abiding business. You can't go to a large event in Scotland without a vaccine passport, but 30,000 VIPs and hangers-on at the upcoming climate conference in Glasgow face no such restriction. I ask again, how stupid do they think we are
2: and, and in this next clip, um, this is towards the end of the same, the same monologue, uh, Neil Oliver starts to look at uh, the, the, the total effect on what he's been observing over these past 20 months um, and how it's changed his view of uh, the people we like to uh, laughingly call our wise overlords.
4: I no longer trust a great part of the political class, scientists, medical professionals, the judiciary, the media, and others besides. For me now, this is about nothing less than morality, right and wrong. Governments make laws, but just because a government makes something law does not necessarily make that law moral, which is to say right. History is littered with the consequences of immoral laws passed in all sorts of places. I say a government that uses a nudge unit to manipulate via social engineering and psychological techniques The behaviour of the people it has been elected to serve, not to rule, remember, but to serve, is immoral. Millions of people in this country have been hurt too badly by what has unfolded here since the spring of 2020. Millions of people have been driven metaphorically, if not literally, to their knees by lockdown and arrest. The health outcomes of millions, the future prospects of generations have been compromised. Far too many have been compromised beyond repair, We are not stupid. We have, however, been too trusting. More than anything else, this is now about our freedom as human beings. But if we do submit to any more erosion of our civil civil liberties, then we will have no one to blame but ourselves. This is our country, and the government are our servants, paid for by us. And I tell you now that I won't submit to immoral laws. Submitting to the law means less to me, a lot less, than being guided by my morals by that which I know to be right and not wrong. Abraham Lincoln said, to sin by silence when they should protest makes cowards of men. We have not been a nation of cowardly men or women. We are not stupid either. We must not let them treat us as though we are. And and this is
2: the core point, that, that compliance with these immoral statutes is not, as so many seem to think, virtuous. It's cowardice
1: i think that's a fair
0: point and a very good um, a very good statement a lot in that but of course it's not just treating us as children it's treating us as children and deceiving us where wherever possible over the weekend uh, i was Having a look for information on the trees being cut down, that's as a result of ash dieback, and that's a whole story in itself. But I stumbled on this very colourful little site. Let's pop it on screen. I'm always fascinated when we see something that looks very cartoon and childish. So what could this possibly be? It says creating a resilient net zero Devon where people and nature thrive. And there's the uh, very childish image. But uh, let's pop on to uh, a little bit of animation here, which, uh, of course, is uh, part of the effect to make sure you're paying attention. Uh, But this is the uh, real website. Apparently, I discovered, to my astonishment and concern, that uh, Devon is in the middle of a climate emergency. Can you imagine that, uh, Mike? No. Uh, Well, apparently... Uh, we are in the middle of an emergency. And so DCE, there's the little round logo at the top, is Devon Climate Emergency. So let's have a look at how this emergency has been uh, uh, created and run. So if we have a look at this bit, the Devon Climate Emergency Project is raising awareness and encouraging everybody to act. So we're having to tell people that there's a crisis and we're encouraging them to do things. And it's a range of organisations across Devon and they've declared a climate, a climate and uh, ecological emergency and have endorsed the principles of the Devon Climate Declaration. You were aware of that, of course, Mike.
1: Totally. Uh, so they have declared.
0: Yes, they. Now, yeah. this is the interesting point because who are these people? But on the right, just very quickly, they've got a Devon Carbon Plan that's all tied in with Net Zero Task Force. They've got a Devon, Cornwall, and Isles of Scilly adaption plan, and they've got an immediate action plan. So we're in safe hands here. Um, let's come back to how it's presented to the public. We are children. So here's an interesting little view. And we've got a cargo ship with sails, of course. Uh, but notice that in the utopia they're describing, uh, you're going to be eating fish and chips, or you're going to be eating ice creams Uh, but this is their utopia we haven't got to worry we're simply the children that are going to be eating the fish and chips and the ice cream they whoever they are are going to be solving all of these problems about global crisis so i did a little bit of uh, digging into this and what do they say about themselves well they're tied in with the intergovernmental panel on climate change they've got a devon climate emergency response group They've got a Devon climate declaration, a Devon carbon plan, and that net zero task force. So we could go home today, really, Mike, because these people have got it all under control. Uh, But at least they say what this really is, is a collaboration. And now we're getting into the meat of it, because this is a collaboration that has never really been fully declared to the public. Uh, Who's involved? Well, unfortunately, quite a lot of people. So here's membership. And what do we find? We find it's all the authorities. So it's Dartmoor National Park, Devon County Council, uh, East Devon District Council, Exeter City Council. This is all the local authorities that have joined up with the Met Office and the University of Exeter and the University of Plymouth. They're working day and night to save us from a climate emergency in Devon. Um, But uh, who set them up in the beginning? Uh, Well, if you have a look there, it says that uh, membership, um, it says there in the red box, membership will be by invitation to strategic and membership organizations. So who invites who? Well, of course, we don't know. So this is effectively an overt secret society where an unknown group of people have decided, if you want to play, you have to apply to come into my club. David, you're smelling a rat, I think.
2: Uh, No, that's Glasgow. This is is different. Uh, We challenge every, at the end of their declaration, we challenge every organisation, business community and individual to do the same as as they're doing. How can they do that if if none of these people uh, or organisations and individuals are allowed to play in their club, in their discussion? Um, That means that they are just dictating to people
0: no no david you've got the wrong end of the stick here this is a completely open inclusive organisation and i'll i'll show you just how that works so this is what they say that 14000 randomly selected devon households are being invited to enter into a civic lottery to determine who represents the county at this summer's devon climate assembly so this this of course is this is for the people to decide so let's see how that works Well, first of all, you need two organisations to make sure that you can get involved. So you've got the Involve Foundation and the Sortition uh, Foundation, and they've conducted citizens' assemblies on behalf of the UK government and the Scottish Parliament. So this this is independent. This is all about the people deciding. And it says that their approach in Devon will ensure that the makeup of the 70 strong Devon Climate Assembly is fair and representative of our population. So they're gonna make sure it's fair. It's nothing to do with the people living in Devon. You're not gonna be able to say whether it's fair. They're going to say. And uh, there we are. That's the 14,000 randomly selected households. And uh, the households will receive an invitation on, till the 24th of May. So all this has happened. It's all been put in place. And then it says at the bottom that age, gender, Ethnicity, disability, geography, socioeconomic status and people's own attitude towards climate change are all factors that will be used to produce a representative assembly. So this is a screening process to make sure that you fit uh, the agenda that they want to see put in place. I, I, I was astonished as I read through this at how blatant it was that this is control of the population. Don't know whether you've got anything to add at that point. because I was going to have a little look at the people involved because then it gets very interesting.
1: Yeah, David. In the past, you know, we have uh, we have suggested that bringing back grand juries would be a good idea, but there's a fundamental difference between the idea of a grand jury and uh, sortition. Uh, and and Brian's just hit it on the head, hit the nail on the head here. It's about who is sitting on the jury or who is sitting in the citizens assembly. And if you have a screening process uh, where you know, uh, an individual or a group of individuals that already have a predisposed agenda or uh, an ideology that are screening who sits on the citizens assembly, that's not equivalent to a grand jury.
2: Oh, quite, quite the the reverse. I mean, and also grand juries um, engage in investigation. Grand juries follow their instincts and dig and ask questions. There's no sign that there will be any questions allowed here. And they're saying that they're, they're going to have a representative of of the population as a whole um, in terms of their view of climate change. Right, But they know that this is done against a wall to wall, intentional um propaganda campaign by the government, by the state, by organisations like the like the BBC with an intentional decision, certainly by the BBC because they've been explicit about it, to exclude any contrary view from the public discourse. So we, having lied consistently to the public uh, for now, what, 30 years, uh, we're pretty sure that we can go and 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 get a, a representative example of the public, and we'll only have a few awkward people who have learned to think for themselves and maybe done a little research, uh, who might be um, saying something uh, against the narrative, but we'll, we'll be able to suppress them with sheer numbers.
1: And Brian, if you think back to the uh, the Occupy movement in St. Paul's, yep. if you remember, they attempted to run a similar type of thing. Uh, but there was all kinds of shenanigans going on, uh, including the use of Delphi technique to try and get the right answer in those circumstances. Out of the
0: people, yes. yeah. Well, let's let's have a look at who is looking after us. So uh, we bring this one up on the screen. So this is some of the people. It says, we believe that people should be at the heart of decision making. Now, the highlight round people there is on the website. That's, that's not something UK Column has done. Uh, so what sort of people are involved with Involve? Uh, Well, we've got Claire Ainsley. She became a trustee in 2019. Uh, Until 2020, she was working with the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. If you don't know what that is, go and research it because you think they have fingers in every single piece of the change pie in society. But in April 2020, she was appointed director of policy to the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. So now we discover that we haven't got an independent group of people. What we've got is a closed loop with government, but uh, putting themselves forward as if they're representing ordinary people. Um, Before uh, joining Joseph Rowntree, she was in public affairs and communication. And in May 2018, she authored the new working class, how to win hearts and minds. Is Claire working class? Well, she may be. But somehow I doubt it. Uh, we'll find out in due course. Uh, we've got this one, Dame Julie Meller. Now, she's chair of Demos and the Young Foundation, two uh, highly profitable organisations um, who two are... Work- highly
1: political organisations? Uh,
0: pro- <laughs> yes. A lot of money coming into them is really what I'm trying to say. They're political and they're extremely well-funded, uh, funded. And uh, what what are they doing? They're all about changing society. But also she's involved with Parliament, or well, from that time, Chair of the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. So these are not independent people. She's wa- worked for Coopers. She's uh, been there at the Department of Business. So these are quasi-political uh, people who are saying they're working for ordinary people. Uh, Hannah White, um, what's she been doing? Deputy Director of the Institute for Government. So this brings us straight back into the political arena. Are they independent? Well, I wouldn't say so. If you look at the end of her CV here, uh, it's boasting about how she's been working in Westminster. She's dealt with a lot of media, The World at One, Newsnight, Victoria, Derbyshire, Channel 4 News, Sky News, uh, frequent contributor to the Institute's comment pages, and writes for a range of media, including The Guardian, The Times, The Telegraph, and Civil Service World. So this is not an independent person for the ordinary man and woman in the street. Kathy Jones, well, it gets better because now we find a person who's not only doing this change agenda in the UK, but she's also tied in with the same work in Australia. So this can't be an independent group of people. There's something else at work. Sharon Squires director of own consultancy, Sharon Squire's consultancy, extensive track record of working with ministers, MPs, and political leaders at the national, regional, uh, regional and local level. David, I'm watching your face on screen. I'm able to do that. Viewers, of course, are not at the moment. But this is not an independent organisation. This is an an organisation that clearly has a very strong political undertone.
2: Yes, and it's assembled from people who are on, on salary, on payroll. Um, they have a blog. There's only one article in the blog uh, written by uh, Darren Phillips. I was just having a wee look to see who she is. Um, and she might actually be very well qualified for the effects of uh, green policy in Devon because she works for the Government Insolvency Service, which,
0: is, which, is, um, which claims to be delivering economic confidence. For the Indeed. Eagles. And as as uh, being pointed out to us from the chat box again today, uh, of course, this is not limited to Devon. This sort of thing is replicated across all the other mm. counties. And ultimately, where it come from? Well, uh, this is UN Sustainable Development Policy. Uh, but if we look at who Involve works with, uh, we find some very interesting people because they're with the NHS, they're with Carnegie UK, Uh, They're working with the Centre for the Study of Democracy, the Home Office, the European Union, Leaders Unlocked. Uh, This is not an independent organisation. Nesta, a very big one. And in the middle there, we've got Open Society. So this is Soros and his billions of dollars for social change. The Wellcome Foundation at the bottom. The one thing I'll give this organisation credit for is that when you go looking for who's funding them, uh, we can actually see quite a lot of detail on the stream. So Joseph Roundtree, but Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, a lot of government funding, Scottish government funding, Home Office funding, um, many of these foundations and charities that we don't really know what they do. So if you really want to understand who is actually uh, dealing with this lot, have a look at the funding. And very quickly, the other organization that was mentioned, and you picked up on Mike, is Sortition. Let's do democracy differently. Well, who are they to suggest this? Well, if we just look at what they're talking about, if we're to believe this text, a group of friends came together. They met in a pub, and I think they met in a restaurant later on, an Indian restaurant, and they decided they were going to get together to change democracy then things got very good for them and they got government contracts and uh, government contracts overseas. And they're expanding and expanding to change democracy. These are the faces. And this is uh, the man who appears to be the co-founder, co-director. Um, he's a taxi, or was a taxi driver, software engineer, social justice activist, mathematics tutor, primary carer of four boys, And he's got a PhD in astrophysics, and he's writing books about changing democracy. And now in the background, he is he's helping to choose people who um, are going to have a voice or not in the climate emergency in Devon. So a little overview there of the sort of way, the devious way which government is now conducted. If you're not living in Devon, have a look at your county, and I'm sure you will find exactly the same. Uh, system at work.
1: Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, also do share material on the various platforms, including uh, brand new Tube, Rumble, BitChute and Odyssey, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and I uh, think a massive thank you once again to everybody who's uh, managed to pick up uh, a UK Column hoodie. The next batch is in and they are being... Uh, Uh, distributed as we speak, but uh, please be patient because uh, uh, we've got... They're worth the wait. Yes.
0: They're worth the wait is the answer. Uh, And a big thank you to people who were pointing at uh, the fact that uh, after going quiet for many months, um, Bill Gates is now back on the scene with uh, Boris Johnson discussing uh, UK's future. Of course, Bill Gates is unelected. He has no status in the country, but he's allowed to sit in in these meetings. Uh, But the other bit that went with this was uh, this rather strange expression, sacrifice the goats. Now, what are we talking about? Thank you very much to the people who pointed us at the little bit of film clip that revealed uh, something very strange going on when uh, Boris was next to Billy Goats himself.
3: And uh, look at look at what they, what's the UK has done with coal-fired uh, power stations. Uh, it's a big problem around the world. I'm massively sympathetic to countries that that are still relying on on coal. But th- there are alternatives. You know, wind is is not a commodity that is restricted to the UK. Uh, it, it, <laughs> there are plenty of. It, it, uh, I know it's, it's been, it hasn't been a particularly windy year, uh, <laughs> we, uh, but we, we, we must propitiate Ioros, the, the, the god of winds. And you know, sacrifice a goat or something, uh, and get it. But, lots, but lots of goats, but, 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 in, a, in a humane way, obviously. But Bill,
6: <laughs> but, but Bill, thinking about the I. E. A. report, you were nodding your head there. It, 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 you know, you've already outlined the four.
0: Well, of course, everybody is laughing and smirking. But could the goats, of course, be the elderly people who've clearly been sacrificed in a disaster, disastrous? Response to the claimed pandemic for COVID-19. What is Bill Gates? What is uh, Boris talking about? And if you watch that video again, you will see how, at one stage, Bill Gates is squirming in his chair as Boris is talking. So, what is in Boris Johnson's head? Is this man material to be the Prime Minister of UK? Uh, I personally don't think so. Uh, but he's happy to be talking about sacrificing animals to help promote his agenda. It's an interesting little video clip.
1: Okay, uh, let's uh, have a look at this gent. This is uh, Neil Bush. He's the UK's representative to the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. He was giving a speech a couple of days ago to congratulate uh, Dmitry Muratov uh, for co-receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, This was apparently for uh, uh, efforts to uh, safeguard freedom of expression in Russia. So he got it. So Neil Bush thought was this was a great thing. So I just wanted to highlight one line from the speech because it said, "We reiterate our concern about Russia's laws on so-called foreign agents, undesirable organisations, and extremism." So keep those three terms in mind: foreign agents, undesirable organisations, and extremism. Because I want to just take you through a little story and remind you how far we have come towards dictatorship in the UK and how hypocritical, utterly hypocritical, this sentence from Neil Bush is. So let's start off with uh, the Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act, no longer a bill, it's an act, of course it was passed last year, uh, and this gives permission for a whole swathe of uh, UK government agencies and uh, others to commit criminal conduct, criminal acts, uh, in order to gather intelligence for the intelligence agencies and the UK government. Um, but uh, let's move on to uh, uh, this one police crime sentencing and courts bill this is currently going through parliament at the moment and of course this is all about preventing undesirable organizations from doing what they want to do and preventing uh, you you know anybody from speaking out and so on Uh, so that is currently in the house of lords here it is Uh, lords continues detailed check of police crime sentencing and courts bill Um, and uh So that uh, went to committee stage, uh, the day one of that was on Wednesday last week, and there were a number of proposed changes in this uh, and amendments that the House of Lords have put into this bill, Um, but it's really pretty fundamentally not changing anything. So for example, uh, members speaking on day one, made these changes. Uh, They discussed changes on a range of subjects, including the mental health of police workforce, the standards by which police driving is to be judged, and backing criminal exploitation of children. That's really all this press release said, so not very much to see there. But here's uh, an example, Uh, an amendment which is intended to probe the meaning of unease in the context of protests. And there are quite a number of similar amendments where there are terms in the bill which remain utterly undefined, so in this case it was unease but there are other terms as well and this goes for the next piece of legislation we're going to mention in a second. Another amendment here which would introduce an express statu- statutory right to protest. So they want to make it as an express statutory right to protest, but well, this is a right we already have but they want to put it into, statu- into statute. Why would they want to do that because of course they want to limit it. So even the House of Lords here is saying. Imposing both negative and positive obligations on public authorities while recognizing that the right of protest may need to be limited to protect the legitimate other legitimate public interests. So it's about taking a right which is unlimited and placing limitations on it. That is what uh, uh, statutory you know, creating the statutory legislation is. Um, so let's have a look at uh, Lord Paddock here because he uh, and a number of other Lords uh, have uh, written to the Home Secretary to express what they describe as concerns about some of the proposals in the police crime bill. So uh, they say, as experts on police use of force, racial profiling, stop and search, we believe that this bill has dangerous implications for the fight against serious violence, an issue that demands police work in service to, uh, in service to, not against the communities facing its harms. Uh, The duty to share intelligence and data may actually exacerbate people's experiences of alienation, exclusion, isolation, some of the root causes of serious violence. And of course that, some may argue, is part of the intention of the bill to actually increase tension, but that may be too conspiratorial for some. Uh, But let's have a look at this. We've got two pieces of uh, uh, codes of practice that have come out uh, this week. Uh, Extraction of information from electronic devices. Now, well, this first one is uh, is about, uh, for example, If uh, your electronic device was owned by, you were the last owner of it before you passed away, then there's no need for uh, any kind of judicial process in order to get rights to the data that's on that phone. Uh, Or if you as an individual were to give permission for the police to get access to the phone, this does not cover uh, the other things. Doesn't contain guidance about, for example, extraction of information from a device obtained using coercive or compulsory powers, such as a search warrant, production order, or statutory notice. It doesn't include, uh, it's not covering things like covert extraction of information from a device, for example, if it's necessary as part of investigation to obtain evidence from a device without a user's knowledge. So there's an implicit acknowledgement here that that sort of thing is going on, but it's not covered by this particular code of practice. And another one uh, that was issued this week, uh, statutory guidance for police on unauthorized encampments. And of course, this is all about uh, limiting or removing Uh, For example, the the anti-fracking campaign uh, that took place a number of years ago uh, and making sure that people can't do the same thing again. So uh, here are the two that we've mentioned so far, Covert Human Intelligence, Criminal Conduct Act, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. The next one, of course, is the Online Safety Bill. We've been talking about that one as well. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google, and TikTok are all giving evidence to the draft Online Safety Bill Committee. Uh, which is taking place uh, on Thursday this week, I believe, uh, or Wednesday and Thursday this week, uh, Thursday. And uh, so we've seen but this, as we've seen from recent evidence sessions, is really hitting all the, uh, the key points that is in the draft legislation already. So this is a shoe-in really. Uh, and then we've got this from uh, Nadine Dorries, who's of course the uh, Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport at the moment. Uh, Someone said they wanted to see me trapped in a burning car uh, and watch flames melt my flesh. Nadine Dorries reveals the online abuse she has received as she promises tougher laws against web trolls. Uh, So she's saying that the question of anonymity has dominated the conversation about online abuse over the past week. Rest assured, this bill will end anonymous abuse because it will end abuse full stop. If it's racist, if it's misogynistic, if it's anti-Semitic, if it's any kind of toxic content that breaks a social media company's terms and conditions, whether hiding behind a fake name or not, it will have to be removed. The police already have the powers, but social media companies need to hand over the data much more quickly and rapidly remove content themselves. Finally, this bill will force platforms to stop amplifying hateful content via their algorithms. And again, hateful content is not defined Uh, in the broader sense. Uh, And here's the bottom line. She says, if social media companies fail in any of these duties, they will face a financial hammer blow. Ofcom will be able to fine them up to 10% of their annual global turnover. Well, good luck with that. Uh, So then where does that take us? Uh, So online safety bill, the final one that I want to remind everybody about is the counter state threats bill. Uh, And uh, so here is the, uh, the legislation to counter state threats, hostile activity. Uh, this was the consultation, um, and this was all about uh, modernising existing co- counter-espionage laws to reflect the modern threat, the modern legislative standards, create new offences tools and powers to con- detect, deter and disrupt hostile activity in and targeted at the UK, and improve our ability to protect official data and ensure that the associated offences uh, reflect the greater ease at which significant harm can be done. Uh, and uh, so this was going to, is going to bring in reform of various uh, official secrets acts, but it's also going to create a foreign influence registration scheme. And so I've just got to say, and this is pretty Patel, it's because this is going to empower the whole national security community to counter the insidious threat we yeah, face so today. Fu-
0: this is fusion, isn't it? It's-, it? it's absolutely fusion.
1: But for Neil Bush to stand up and criticize Russia, for you know, being concerned about certain groups, about uh, expelling certain groups in some cases that are operating from abroad, and then to, to, to argue that uh, you know uh, argue the position that he was arguing is untenable. And David, the key point here is that with respect to these uh, the, the, particularly the changes to the um, Official Secrets Act, um, this is going to be have a chilling effect on journalism. Uh, and on whistleblowers. Because anybody that is publishing data that's been received from whistleblowers or who's refusing to, for example, to uh, admit to the authorities who the whistleblower is, are gonna find themselves in significant difficulty. Uh, And so we've got four pieces of legislation here, which are all enabling acts. They're all enabling acts. And if you add the uh, Coronavirus Act onto that as well, five pieces of legislation in total, which in, in total, it creates a massive dictatorship here.
2: Yes, and, and you, you're you quite right to highlight the issue of definition. Right? Because I mean, we found this in Scotland, it's always a little bit in advance of what they, they do in the UK, it's a testing ground. Legislation no longer makes any coherent sense because nothing's defined. Or at least you don't find out what the definition is until later. The definition for practical purposes comes with the um, with the policy and the training given to the people who are administering the Act, which you don't find out about when it's going through Parliament. So it, it, it doesn't get any scrutiny. And, of course, it's easily changed uh, down, downstream. Uh, Aidan O'Neill, when he was fighting the named person uh, fight at the Supreme Court, used to complain that Name person was like trying to nail fog to the wall because to argue against it, you first had to define what it was. And it was everything and nothing. It, there was no, there was no clarity of definition, uh, and of course, this um, tendency to to look at things like you know this person wanted to see me burn my f- flesh melt in the burning car, right? The, when questioned on this this poorly defined or ill defined uh, concepts that have been introduced into law. What the the state will do is, it'll look at a, a very extreme example that everyone will agree will agree on. You know, here's some child being killed, or here's a politician being tortured, or a human being being tortured, and we're all against that, aren't we? Go, on, yes, but that's of course not the issue. The issue is at the margin. Where does the dividing line come? What stops being free speech and journalism, and what starts being criminal? How has that dividing line been moved? Maybe just a little just now, but but the the, the reason that there is the, the words are not clear. Is that they are providing smoke, and just like an infantry attack, smoke means that they're concealing movement. What they're doing is they're shifting definitions, they're shifting your rights, and they're concealing it by smoking their words where nothing is clear.
1: Uh, and Brian, it seems to me that the, the key point we've got here is that only one of those pieces of legislation is already an act; the rest are bills. There's still time to stop it, but that's going to require public engagement.
0: And people have got to understand what's coming and it's seeing these little pieces of the jigsaw coming in. You've you've done a really good job there, Mike, of showing when the little pieces come together, the jigsaw is something very nasty. People have got to warn warn other people, speak about it. And as we are always saying, those lazy, ignorant, arrogant MPs, they need to be brought back into the fold and educated because they are going to suffer Uh, if this dictatorship is allowed to fully establish itself. They're not going to be above it. They are going to be part of it because they are nobody in the scale of the the wider global policy.
1: Um, Let's move on to inflation then. I'm going to start off with this uh, from American Shipper uh, and uh, it's entitled Update $26 billion worth of cargo stuck on container ships off California. So what are they saying? They're saying that uh, delayed ocean freight from Asia around the west coast of the United States is playing a significant role in creating inflationary shortages and breakdowns in the American economy. It's worsening. Uh, An all time record of 103 large container ships, which carry most but not all of ocean going non bulk cargo uh, were either at port docks waiting or waiting offshore Los Angeles and Long Beach ports on the 20th of October uh, and uh, so the average time for a container ship to wait offshore before entering port had risen, risen from a week in mid-September to 13 days that now, and some ships which are running by smaller mar- maritime companies have been waiting up to six weeks, um, and uh, so they're saying that uh, in the meantime other statistics, in fact this uh, the same uh, magazine saying uh, UK industri- or, sorry U.S. industrial production uh, falling uh, by 1.3% in September month to month, uh, so output of manufacturers down by 0.7%, uh, 7.2% drop in production of uh, cars and motor vehicle parts, uh, utilities output down by 3.6%, and uh, mining output, which includes oil and national ga- natural gas by 2.3%. So we've got falls in, uh, for example, mining output for natural gas and of course that's feeding into price rises for natural gas, which is feeding into uh, as an input cost into production and so on. And so it goes on um, and now let's move on to this one. Then this is from Energy Ener, Data, uh, And this is quite interesting as well, because uh, actually this goes back to September, 2020, the, no, the Netherlands cuts Groningen uh, gas production for 2020, 2021. Um, so that was announced last year. But what's been announced now, uh, more recently, is that the Dutch are now, have now confirmed the plan to end gas production at Kroningen, uh next year. Uh, and so they're going to cut it by a further 50% straight away uh, and then shut it down completely. Apparently the reason they're going to shut it down, Brian, is because of earthquake risk.
0: Well, that's, that's very interesting, since we've got a lot of problems around the world that I think would take higher priority. But... You, you might think so.
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, they say the the uh, Dutch government saying that the gas taps will only be turned on again if there are very cold winters, but they will not be turned on again for any price fluctuations. Uh, so, David, briefly thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, well, that's a lie. Price sorts everything. It's just a matter of scale. Um, and w- well we'll come to a, a lot of this so it, it, it's just worth noting that the mainstream media's view is oh it's the ships and, 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 and falling production and, and, and supply shocks that's what's happening nothing else to see here there's nothing bigger happening here it's nothing to do with money printing move along please um, let's look at that uh, momentarily in some more detail
1: uh, well let's look at it now so the Guardian how to inflation proof your finances, that that in, in what was that, six words, seven words, uh, had me in stitches when I saw it earlier on.
2: Yes, it is, it's a deeply funny, it's a deeply funny article and shows exactly the opposite of what they're trying to show, right? So, you've got this um, odd uh, illustration here of a nice Sikh gentleman in a turban uh, wrestling with uh, an inflationary spike. Um, so, uh, and then the, the Guardian's gonna tell you how to fix this because because it's gonna be inflation-proof. You'll have nothing to, to, uh, to worry about. So they say, you know, fix your mortgage, right? Okay, how long for, Guardian? How long do you think this is gonna last? Oh, it's only transitory, it's only temporary, don't worry about it. Change what you buy, that meant buy poorer quality goods because you can't afford proper, like, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables anymore. You gotta buy stuff in tins because you're poor now. That's what they're saying. Trim any regular costs or do less. Do less. Invest some of your savings for those who have savings, for those who are not struggling to make ends meet. And then sort out your savings. If you have a thousand pounds or more in savings, you could earn 0.6%, six pounds a year. Wow, that's really gonna sort things. Thanks, Guardian. <laughs> um, ask for a pay rise, they continue. Now ask for a pay rise is admission that we've changed and that we're now. We're starting to recognise we're in an inflationary environment, so that's them admitting that everything's changed. Uh, Index-linked your pension income only oh a Guardian columnist could come up with that one, and then most critical of all, don't critical of all, don't put off big purchases. Anything that you know you want to buy and have the money to pay for. Better buy it sooner rather than later. So they're actually saying, see all of that advanced demand that you've, that you've got stretching out over the next 18 months? Uh, spend all that now because that's going to help inflation. That's, that's, how, to, that's how to proof yourself against inflation. It's, it's one of the funniest economic articles I've read in a long time. So thanks. Thank, thank the Guardian for that.
1: Um, but that. But that takes us on to, uh, to the lovely European Central Bank. Well, it's
2: just it's, here's, some, here's a little data. Let's just, just remember what the graph looks like. This is from 99 to present day. This is the uh, European Central Bank's uh, balance sheet. This is their money printing. And it's going exponential. Okay, that is not a good graph. That's a graph of hyperinflation. Uh, and that's, and a, that's a graph show... which
1: is replicated in the Fed and also in the Bank of England.
2: Yes, all around the world, all major banks are doing this. It's all the same. We only have one answer left, which is to print money and try and buy our way out of trouble. That's it. That's the only answer they've got. It's just a matter of how we're um, communicating this. Um, Now, this brings us to the Bank of England. Bank of England got a new chief economist uh, replacing uh, Mr. Haldane. And his name is Blue Pill. No, his name is Hugh Pill. And Hugh Pill um, is, is, is warning that um, we, we, we might have ooh, 5% inflation, really. So, a quick look at his biography. Hugh Pill is a chief economist. Uh, he was previously chief European economist at Goldman Sachs. So, you know, you can trust him because he worked for Goldman Sachs. Um, uh, before that, he worked in the European Central Bank in Frankfurt. They served as deputy director and head of its monetary policy stance division. So see all that hyperinflation we just saw from the European Central Bank? He endorsed that, right? He bought into that and he's now at the Bank of England. It's all one big club. We are not in it. Uh, and they have no ideas uh, whatsoever. So the BBC reports... Um, the, the, the dear Mr. Blue, uh, Blue Pill is saying inflation is likely to hit 5%, warns Bank of England chief economist. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's already there and it's on the way to something much higher. But there we go. He, he said it follows recent comments from Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, who said it will have to act on inflation. The UK interest rate has been a historic low of 0.1% since mm-hmm. March 2020. So we don't have interest rates anymore. We just screwed them to the floor, made them them zero and didn't worry about pesky interest rates. Um, And now they're starting to worry uh, maybe that's going to end badly. Um, And the BBC goes on again repeating this argument that it's all about supply shocks. It's not about money printing. Uh, They report some of the world's biggest food producers have also said they've got increasing prices. Unilever, which makes PG tips, um, and Dove Skin Care said it had lifted prices and expects to continue to lift them into next year. Well, inflation. The Times reported uh, the Unilever said that palm oil, uh, which the company uses in soap and moisturisers, has risen by 82% over two years because of a labour shortage in Indonesia. Uh, poor crop production of soya beans in Brazil has also led to higher prices. Kraft Heinz, which makes tomato ketchup, and baked beans has recently warned that people will have to get used to higher food prices. Nestle revealed that they had increased prices, and the maker of KitKat, um, they said that this was due to increased higher energy, increased raw material costs, and transport. So everything's getting more expensive at the one time, but it's all just a coincidence. There's nothing else to see, says the BBC.
1: Uh, So, okay. Uh, so we've got labour shortages everywhere. Uh, how can this be when we've got rising populations? What are people doing with their time? Or is it, as in fact, as a result of government policy uh, that people are sitting idle? Is that the problem?
2: Well, no, no, it's inflation. It's the, it's, it's the disintegration of the economy under the effects of inflation. So I looked for an Austrian economist take on this, and I found one written by Austin Macleod. Called An Austrian Take on Inflation, just for a bit of sanity. Um, It was written in November 13. The date didn't actually come up. I had to go and look for it. I think it was 2014. Uh, And I want you to remember that because some of this might sound like he wrote it yesterday, but he didn't. He wrote it in 2014, and it's a little bit prophetic. So he's writing here um, We know that today's macroeconomists are very confused about inflation. If only. Uh, because despite all experience, they think they can print money and increase bank credit with a view to generate price inflation at a controlled 2% rate. So he goes on to say uh, that Mises had a, had a discussion on this, and had it had two phases of inflation, and he Alice MacLeod has introduced a third an interim phase. so Mises wrote that basically the beginning of the inflow of additional money makes prices of some commodities rise, other prices rise later. generally people do not expect prices to rise and even think they might fall. Uh, this is the situation it describes today that was written in two thousand fourteen The interim phase stop me if this gets very familiar. Uh, so, Alison McLeod writes: This is followed by an interim period when price rises become more widespread, and people begin to shift their preferences from holding money towards buying goods whose prices they no longer expect to fall. Popular opinion fails to link rising prices to earlier increase in the quantity of money. It is thought that the te- it is thought to be a temporary phenomenon, the result of other factors such as economic recovery and supply bottlenecks. That is absolutely spot on. That was written uh, seven years ago, and then the final. Uh, phase is we enter von Mises' second phase where the population realises that money is losing purchasing power and they increasingly dump it for goods as rapidly as possible. This is the flight out of money and into goods. This is what the Guardian, only today, was advocating. Uh, this is the uh, catastrophic house or crack-up boom. Uh, once the currency enters this phase, it is doomed. So uh, we're just about there.
1: Uh, but we don't have to worry, David, because got central bank digital currencies waiting in the wings. Uh, they're, they're scrambling as fast as they possibly can, because, of course, this is the end game. Now, under normal circumstances, people wouldn't accept uh, a central bank digital currency with the, uh, with the, the issues of control and, and uh, data gathering and, and so on uh, that come with that. But perhaps if there was a problem with your own currency and your own currency basically wasn't working anymore, maybe people might accept that. I would suggest they would, Mike. Yes. Well, I think we should leave it there.
0: Well, I I would just say to people, it's a good time to be good to your neighbours because I've got a feeling that in the uh, coming weeks and months, many of us might need help from our neighbours. So uh, if you're thinking, what can I do to improve my situation? Have a go at helping other people.
1: Uh, David, we have just one little piece of video to play out with. uh, So maybe you'd like to introduce this.
2: Yes, uh, against the background where the world is coming to Glasgow, the COP26, uh, but it's bringing COVID and uh, we're shutting down the city and uh, people are not being able to get to hospital. Um, Nicola Sturgeon's had a major crisis to do with uh, astronomically high record, world record uh, levels of drug deaths in Scotland. And she's responded by appointing a Green politician to the cabinet who has said, there's nothing inherently unsafe about taking drugs. Um, she's, been, she's lost again at the Supreme Court. Um, she can't build a ferry. She's made Scottish education, which used to be the finest in the world, a laughingstock. And against this there's a background of completely unreal agitation for um, a, a new independence referendum, and Scotland's going to be free. And as soon as we've got the English... The, the the dead weight of the english will be will be rich beyond the, the the dreams of avarice this kind of utterly unreal backdrop uh, from our supporters is is going on all the time and nicole's looking increasingly morose and sad and depressed uh, as everything she touches uh, goes wrong and i saw this little video uh, someone had created and put on the uh, on the uh, on twitter And I thought it summed up her situation, pitiful, pitiable though it is, um, extremely well.
1: Yes, there we go.
0: Excellent. Right. (laughs) We're going to end there. Thanks for joining us, uh, David. Thank you to all our uh, viewers and listeners. Uh, Thank you to everybody who's supporting the UK column. Um, We are very pleased with how things are going at the moment. We are looking at uh, expansion, Uh, more on this in due course, but all of this we've only been able to do with your support. So if you're somebody who's watching and not yet a full supporter, please consider subscribing because... uh, We'd like to get bigger and inform more people as to what's really happening in the UK and worldwide.
1: And we'll be on the uh, main live stream with some extra in a few minutes. Uh, so stick with us if you're a member. And otherwise, we'll be back 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye.